0: Hi there, this is Kent Roundy at USH Med Student coming back for another podcast. I've got three guests with me here and uh, people that I care a lot about. Some people I've known for uh, a decade and some uh, for almost a week now. So let's start off with Jamin. Jamin, you're a medical student here with us. You want to introduce yourself?
1: Yeah, my name is Jamin Hemingway. I'm a fourth year medical student at Rocky Vista College of Medicine uh, down in Southern Utah.
2: And I'm Lance Earnshaw, I'm a third year medical student over at Rocky Vista University. Um, I'm fortunate enough to be the son of Dallas Earnshaw, who's here, I'll let him introduce himself. And I've had a good time uh, shadowing Dr. Roundy uh, in my pre-medical education, so I've been fortunate enough to know him for a while.
3: And I'm Dallas Earnshaw, the superintendent of the state hospital. I've been there 36 years and going strong.
0: (laughs) Dallas, how did you start off in psychiatry? I, I, I.
3: So I'm actually, uh, by my original profession, I graduated as a nurse. I was a shock trauma ICU nurse back in the 70s and early 80s, and I came to this area to get a FNP nurse practitioner license uh, training, and the only job I could find was at the state hospital because there was a gluttony of RNs at the time, and every facility had a stack of RN applications. So the only job I found was a part-time job at the State Hospital back in 1983, and that uh, changed my life. I fell in love with the State Hospital and went back to school after I finished my FMP and got a psychiatric nursing uh, degree certification at the University of Utah.
0: I love that story. As you know, I also love the State Hospital. In fact, I love it so much I got married there just yes. over a year ago yes. on the campus there, love that place. Uh, so this, this podcast deviates somewhat from previous podcasts. Jamin and I were talking, Jamin is a new medical student that I have with me in the last week or so. And we were talking, he said, hey, we need to address the issue of why all of a sudden your podcast stopped. And I said, uh, well, yeah, we, we probably do. That's, that's not a bad idea, but if we're going to do that, we've got to have an expert on the issue. And you happen to know both Lance and I know Dallas. And, and so I immediately emailed Dallas and said, Dallas, you gotta help us. So Dallas, we've got a bunch of questions for you about how you've kept this hospital safe, right? And I think uh, just to set the stage here, the coronavirus, there's uh, some pretty significant excess death from this. A lot of people have died over the last year that probably wouldn't have absent coronavirus showing up. Uh, it's been uh, pretty significant effect on major hospitals and major cities. The rural areas seem to be seeing a later effect on the wave, and uh, somehow the Utah State Hospital has not had any patient um, contract the coronavirus as far as we know, and, and I think that's unbelievable. So we wanted to ask you about that, and uh, I know, Jamin, I think you looked up some of the, like, what it's like in the community, generally speaking. Um, So maybe we can start there before we head over to Dallas.
1: Yeah, um, you know, some of the things I looked up as we decided this would be a good topic is I looked up yesterday at the CDC's website to be as up-to-date as possible. We've had about 153,000 deaths so far that have been attributed to coronavirus. And um, the rates change state to state, but in the state of Utah, about 42% of those are actually from nursing homes. And I thought, well, this is a pretty similar facility to nursing homes, kind of continued down that rabbit hole. We know that those who are on antipsychotics uh, medications actually have a relative risk or a hazardous risk of um, about two and a half times that of someone with the similar risks that aren't on an antipsychotic. So we even have a worse situation here brewing. And then uh, this isn't a prison, but you can kind of compare it in the the very close uh, quarters and there's some research out of John Hopkins that says prisoners are about five times more likely to get coronavirus than the average population so you kind of have this perfect storm of patients on antipsychotics which is worse patients who are kind of like a prison system that are much much worse um, and you know, there's a lot of similarities to nursing homes as well. And so I just thought we've got the perfect storm brewing and from the first second I stepped onto your campus, right, we're stopped, we're pushed over to a, um, people to take our temperature and ask us questions. So you've done a lot of things to, um, to get the outcomes that you have. And it sounds like this wasn't something that happened on accident. It was something you would prepped for a little bit.
3: Correct. So let me give you a little bit of a history, and that is when you, um, as a facility like ours, as a hospital, these aren't things that you, you should be uh, waiting for at the last minute to prepare for. We as a hospital, as a joint commission accredited hospital, as a certified CMS hospital, are well prepared for pandemics to happen. We have protocols in place and have for years we practice those protocols. We do uh, dry run uh, exercises, tabletop exercises to talk through these challenges. And we even had a small outbreak with influenza A right before the coronavirus showed up in Utah. And so we, we had uh, implemented um, opportunities for us to really learn where our weaknesses were and address those. So. We have a good system in place and had a good system in place when this first hit Utah. And we met as an instant command, which is already formulated by policy of who those players are and discussed, we have a pandemic in the world right now and it's moving quickly across the United States. It's here in Utah. What are we gonna do about this? Because our campus is a large campus. We have um, over 300 patients on any given day We have people coming and going from the campus, probably about 500 people a day come and go from our campus. How are we going to keep that virus from entering our grounds? Because our patients in a secure environment, in congregate care, just like nursing homes and jails, are sitting ducks. And that's what our view was, is this virus can't enter the campus boundaries. So we knew we had to secure the boundary and nobody could come in into the campus who was going to be at risk in any such way. So we had to develop protocols that would minimize that risk. We knew it would be uh, impossible to keep it out of the campus because staff were coming and going and you can't control what staff do when they're gone and who they're exposed to. But you can have protocols in place that you can mitigate that and reconcile it once it happens. So as we implemented our strategies, our main concern was securing the campus and having a very tight protocol for entrance with guidelines that followed the CDC guidelines for how you monitor people, who is at risk and identifying those risk people. So we came up with a processes to where we could identify those high risk people or even moderately risk people and keep them off campus. We were fortunate enough to have already in place a very sophisticated communication system and tracking system, which we were able to put all of that data into a system from day one So when the command center said secure the campus, we basically did. We shut off all entrances to the campus except one, and we set up a 24-7 monitoring of everybody coming and going from the campus with security involved. So we have a police officer there to assist us, and we've had to use them uh, for individuals who have tried to get on campus without permission just after a couple of weeks, we knew that that uh, entrance, that checkpoint was going to be there for months probably. And so we build a more permanent uh, fixture to where people could drive through. We had more security with resources there to keep that sustained at 24 seven. So that was our main goal is identifying where our risks were and keeping that risk of the coronavirus off campus and uh, educating our staff Uh, as much as possible, communicating with our staff. We began immediate daily notifications to staff uh, updates so they knew exactly what the protocols were. We put those out and then the command center had to make sure that we had the resources to do this, that our staffing was set up so that if we did have a crisis, we knew how to respond to it and our PPE, our resources, our supplies were managed appropriately. So I've
0: got to back up for just a second. There's something really important that I want to make clear, and that is that the Utah State Hospital is nothing like a jail or a prison, just in case anybody might have that. (laughs) I apologize for the comparison. No, it's it's an institution that has people that cannot leave voluntarily, and that's obviously very similar to those institutions. But I would say that most uh, jails, prisons, and even nursing homes Aren't guarded on the front side by a herd of deer in an apple orchard, <laughs> nor on the back side by 10,000 foot peaks. Yeah, this is the yeah. most beautiful campus in the world, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that, that was the first thing. And then the second thing I wanted to follow up on is, Jim, and you said that uh, the risks for patients with schizophrenia who are on these antipsychotic medications, right? We're, we're aware that our patients seem to die younger than um, age matched controls, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe even a decade if you have bipolar disorder, maybe a little more if you have schizophrenia. When you are talking about this, were you talking about respiratory illnesses, that increased risk of respiratory illnesses, or was that just the, the standardized mortality ratio? What was that number that you were referring to? Um,
1: the one I was referring to is there's some really interesting research with Parkinson's patients. And many Parkinson's patients get a form of dementia. Um, but not all of them are treated with antipsychotics. So I'm, I'm going kind of to that group because I feel like it's a good cohort with less variables to add in. Um, that could confuse the outcome. So I, I was referring to mostly that group that we know if you take these people with the same risks, the same age, all you know, try and get rid of as many confounders as possible. That we know um, from infectious disease things like that, their hazard risk, which is a little bit different than an odds risk or a relative risk, but their hazard risk is um, about two, 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 two and five. a half times greater. So it wasn't necessarily specifically broken down to a respiratory, respiratory. specific.
0: So what we'll do is uh, we'll go ahead and put the link to that article, uh, the PubMed link to that article in the description of mm-hmm. of uh, the presentation of the podcast so that we can all look at that later. Go ahead.
3: Kent, I could probably add to just anecdotally the risk of our population is a third of our patients uh, are diagnosed with diabetes. We have a large percentage of our patients that have Hep C. We have immunocompromised patients at the hospital. Uh, and just generally, the, the mortality rate of men, individuals with mental illness, the stress levels that they go through, are 20 years younger. So you've got a lot of health care factors lined up besides psychotropic medications and the type of patient who's on those that makes our patient population at risk. Uh, and I would even say our pediatric population who the community doesn't view as high risk, the type of medications our patients are on, the stress they're under, you know just what we, what we haven't even included in this research is how is it impacting the immune system and the ability of one's body to fight this off. Yeah, great, great comments. Uh,
0: so Dallas, the thing that amazed me the most and amazes me more over time is that the command center, the leadership involved in, in directing the hospital during this crisis, they seem to have jumped on the, that checkpoint that you mentioned very quickly, well ahead of what anybody else was doing in the community. right? I've been having my temperature checked now for, what, four or five months since March? Over five. March 12th, roughly, right? And now I'm starting, when, when my wife and I go out to eat, the restaurants we really like are the ones that say, I need to check your temperature before you can sit down and eat with us, right? Mm-hmm. And your tables are spaced apart and everything else, but, but it's so normal now. We, we started, you and the command center started this early. How did you do that? How did you see that coming? What was it that, that led you to know that, that the interventions you had needed to start?
3: So, so basically it came down to the question, how do we keep the coronavirus off the campus? We can't let people on campus, and so we immediately restricted people that didn't have business on campus. So visitors, public, uh, and only essential people could come on campus. So we immediately started a campus restriction. Uh, even uh, initially, students and volunteers were restricted. So we could reevaluate. You know, let's close it completely down, and then we'll decide where we're going to open up. And so we. We later made decisions that students were an essential part of business. You have to have a workforce to continue to grow. Uh, And so we didn't want to uh, disable the the educational uh, process. Uh, Volunteers were not as essential, but now that we're moving down the road a little bit and people are getting burned out, we're looking at they may have an essential aspect. For example, our student nurses are running our checkpoint now. That has saved us thousands of dollars. Uh, as a budget issue uh, because now we're not having to assign staff there. But really our protocols were how do we screen? How do we know who's a high risk? So we identified the CDC guidelines at that point, who was a high risk, and we created protocols that no one who met those guidelines could enter the campus. So basically it was secure the campus, one entrance point, identify the risks, turn them away. And that was the... That's true, but I still... I. I still think you caught on really quick.
0: I don't know if that's a, I don't know how to say that otherwise,
3: but I, I think part of that was the commitment of the individuals involved. We knew looking at the national data that we were like this this isolated geographic area that was high risk. It was like prisons, hospitals. We were seeing what was happening in the medical hospitals back east. It's like, how are they managing the risk factors? Yeah, everybody was talking about PPE. Everybody was talking about shutting down business, but we were dealing with a healthcare facility. We couldn't shut it down. You had to maintain operations. How do you minimize that risk? And really it was, we just foresaw that it was coming. This was a pandemic. It had moved all the way across the world. There was no escaping it. Utah was not going to escape this. And we couldn't sit around and wait until somebody came and told us what to do, we had to we had to say go.
2: So, having you know, being your son and having maybe a, a little bit uh, more of an informal uh, uh, opportunity to have conversations with you, uh, you and I had a conversation recently about a family friend who had gotten sick because of a uh, another individual who came to work who had lied about his, his COVID status. He knew he was being tested that day and it exposed that, that friend. And I, I was talking about this. I thought your response was very interesting. You very much focused on um, making sure you establish trust with your uh, employees rather than setting up a punishment for, um, you know, coming to work, being sick. It seemed like you were very focused on making sure your, your uh, employees trusted you and were on your team. Could you comment more on how you establish that trust and what you're doing to uh, uh, build your staff up to be on that team?
3: The, the first thing was we knew that there was a debate nationally about the economic strain COVID was gonna cause on people. And there was great fear that people were losing their jobs all over the place. And our st- we knew when we shut down, staff were going to be worried about their, their jobs because if we're going to turn you away at the checkpoint because you're at risk, what, what does that mean for me? Uh, you know, What if I only have two days of leave time left uh, and I've got to go quarantine for 14 days? We knew that there had to be integrity in that system. And so we had to create a plan to say to the employee, we got your back, we're gonna pay for this, don't worry about it, your, your job's not at risk. Take that stress out of the equation, and then the employees are gonna cooperate with the protocol, so that was key number one. Number two was the, uh, the emotional dynamic of the stressor, and we had to make sure that people had information. You can't say we're doing something, close off, have a checkpoint, and make it feel like uh, you have no clue why we're doing this. What does this all mean? So we, we, from the day one, we thought we're going to communicate every day with employees, so they, so we can answer any question they have, and minimize the stress, because that was going to be a key to sustaining our success and sustaining our resources. I've heard numerous people who have received calls from Department of Health tracers or different individuals, uh, re, you know, having to report they are positive and feeling embarrassed feeling interrogated, feeling like I've had people say I felt like a criminal when I was called. And it's almost like society was almost afraid to say I got exposed, like you did something wrong. Oh, how dare you? You know, you're putting people at risk. We didn't want people to feel ashamed by giving information that maybe they had gone to a family party and got exposed. We wanted people to feel comfortable saying, "Okay, I did this. And so we really wanted to take the shaming aspect out of the reporting process. So making them feel financially secure and emotionally comfortable were two of our key uh, goals, is helping employees know this is okay. We're, it's all about safety for patients and staff. Please work with us. So uh,
1: I had a little bit of a question, kind of a logistical question. I know for my family, we started seeing the weird things that there was no toilet paper and no Mm -hmm. diapers at uh, Costco anymore. Was there anything that you guys burned through your supplies too quickly or had a hard time getting? And how how did you address those problems?
3: So that's something that as a hospital, we just have always been very cognizant of. You have to be prepared for emergencies. And so we always at the hospital always have plenty of supplies of those kind of essentials. So we were never at risk for shortages on cleaning supplies, toilet paper, PPE, except masks. That was the one thing that we weren't expecting is we've never in our scenarios thought about everybody was gonna have to wear a mask and how often. So when we initially put out that we're gonna have everybody wear masks, we actually put out special guidelines on how to reuse a mask. We gave everybody a special bag and taught them how to care for that mask so you could use it again tomorrow. We had heard that people in uh, New York City, the nursing staff, were wearing their PPE for seven days straight because they were so short. So those were challenges we had to look at, but that was the only area we were not prepared in. So a lot of it is just uh, as an organization, as a leader, you have to foresee what the potentials might be. There's a concept in the Joint Commission Accreditation called high reliability organization. Nuclear plants, the airline industry, when they do their protocols, they don't go, let's fix a problem, where did we have an inefficiency? They go, let's identify every potential problem that might happen before it happens and put every protocol in place so it won't happen. So they already know to prevent something before it ever, ever happens. That's what a high-reliability organization is. When you go through that accreditation process, we have proto- We have activities every year looking at what could go wrong, even though it hasn't gone wrong. Supply, those have been issues we've always looked at for years. What if there's an emergency and we have to sustain ourselves independently for a couple of months if there was an earthquake? So those things are already in place, and that was one of the nice things about this is we didn't have to worry about that like the community did. Um,
1: I actually had another question on you talked about um, you knew this was coming and we're kind of living in a, a time that it's hard to get good data. So what are some of the sources that you use that you were so convinced? Okay, this is a real problem, even if, you know, many of my other sources are telling me it's
3: nothing. Uh, Two main areas, Uh, we are, one, very connected to the CDC and the Department of Health. So we were getting a lot of information from the federal government on the CDC guidelines. We were watching the reports. We were seeing what was happening to other hospitals. Secondly, we saw um, we are connected to a national association through the Department of Health called SAMHSA or the National Association of State Mental Health Program Directors. It's a network of state psychiatric facilities. So we were talking on a regular basis, probably daily or weekly with our folks in Washington and our organization, which is every state hospital in the Western United States. And we were sharing information. We were consulting with each other. We were talking to each other and everybody saw it coming. So it was a collective uh, knowledge base of people that were in leadership positions that were saying, we gotta be ready. We're a high risk population. And we got to be prepared for this. But basically, it came down to the intuition of our command center, the expertise of our clinicians at the hospital. They just, we all got together, we talked, and said, we got to do something. Even if this doesn't happen, we need to move forward in case it does. We can't wait till it does to do something. We got to do something now before it happens.
0: Tell us what's been the biggest surprise going into this and then. Six months, five, six months later?
3: I think um, if you want the word surprise, um, that's, I don't know that I've been overly shocked by anything, one thing. Uh, I've been extremely pleased with how the staff have responded. Everybody has been very uh, willing to support our protocols. Uh, I was a little bit surprised in the very beginning at the resistance I got from some staff. Uh, But then when I saw what was going on in the community, then it just made sense to me that there was a lot of people who didn't believe it was a big risk. So you had people that thought it was a joke, all the way to people that were so scared they were crying at the checkpoint because they didn't know what to do. So you had this big gamma, this big array of emotional reactions. That was... Not a surprise to me, but the intensity level of it was a little bit of a surprise. Uh, That, wow, you know, you got people dying all over the place back east. Well, we think those are made up stories. We don't think it's true. To thank you, thank you, thank you for doing this. I'm scared to death. You know, I don't want to take this virus home. And and so just the emotional reaction, just trying to deal with that with, with people. The other thing is just the slowness of the community to get it. It was like come on people it was like it took so long for the community to just take it seriously it was driving me crazy uh and you know i kept putting out updates and briefs to the staff about you know when you leave work i have no control over you but these are things please do the following to protect yourself so you're still a viable worker and can come on to back to work Because if you go home and you don't take this seriously at home, then you're not going to get back on campus. And we needed to protect our workforce. So drilling that information into people, it surprised me how long it took people to take it seriously.
0: Dallas, you've talked about uh, early recognition of the problem. You've talked about setting up a checkpoint, closing the campus. Um, You've talked about the risks associated with not closing the campus. You've talked about the preparedness through the... I think it was largely earthquake preparation, right? Mm-hmm. We sit on a big fault, so it's largely earthquake preparation. Mm-hmm. There's a system to track all the employees that you took from the earthquake preparation work to be able to keep track of, you know, how many employees do we have at the state hospital? Six, 700 a Almost day. 900. Almost 900, so you're able to track 900 patients who come on and off campus every, or 900 employees who come on and off <laughs> campus every day. You, you talked about preparing and getting uh, PPE, keeping the staff safe. Um, what have we not asked about that? I mean, what do we not know that we haven't asked about? What, where, where are our gaps?
3: So, so the one question that everybody scratches their head about is um, the asymptomatic people that are walking around. Do we really... What we know is who's been exposed, who's been tested, and we only know the data on people that have been tested. What we don't know is the data on the people that haven't been tested. There was a hospital in Georgia that went in, and they had about 600 people. They tested all of their staff and all of their patients, and most were asymptomatic. 50% of the people tested positive. 50% of the staff and 50% of the patients. That was in March. We were scared to death. We didn't, I think a part of us didn't want to know the outcome of that if we went that route. And the Department of Health really wanted to come in since we were sort of a captive audience and test everybody. It was my belief that that was a very unique situation, that they probably had an outbreak and didn't know they did. I didn't think that was the general rule for the general public because as we started seeing people tested who were exposed, everybody was coming back negative. Our positive test rate was less than 3%. And when we got up around 100 to 150 employees that had been tested, and the majority of were coming back negative, I started to realize that uh, in my assumption, 50% of the people are not walking around positive. The other thing that we haven't talked about is the realities of herd immunity. There is a real attitude that we should just open the doors, let everybody get it, and just create this herd immunity. But there has been research that after about three months to four months of people who are tested positive, they don't have the antibodies to fight the coronavirus to the efficient level that they would need, which means do we really truly develop an immunity to this? And and secondly, if you look at the studies on measles, you have to have about a 94%, um, I forget the name of that level, it's a a threshold that you have to achieve to develop true herd immunity in the community. Well, for 94% of the citizens to get coronavirus, there's gonna be a lot of people die before we develop herd immunity. Do we really wanna take that risk as a community? So those are things we don't know that we're making assumptions about. And my attitude is we're not going to d- compromise our safety protocols for those assumptions. We're, we're just not going to go there. Our patients deserve better.
0: I like that. I want to change gears just a little bit. Um, we've had some interesting things happen with the medical students in this period of time. The, the, the whole impetus for this discussion was all of a sudden the podcast stopped. And the reason why is we had, as you mentioned, the students we... We're pretty careful with having them on campus. We had a couple of students who did two week rotations, three or four, maybe five, to have what was called a makeup rotation, even though they had never failed the original rotation. It was kind of an interesting concept. They had all passed their shelf exams before they showed up for the rotation. It was very, very interesting to watch. In fact, it looks like they do better without me than they do with me, right? is that what you were saying earlier, Jamin? That, that the less time with Dr. Roundy, the higher the score on the shelf exam. Well, not,
1: not you specifically. <laughs> Just we, uh, our, some of our clinical coordinators released the data that um, the amount of people failing shelves went to essentially zero, and our averages went way up as we quit seeing
0: because you quit working with physicians. <laughs> quit so, working there, yes. so that's very, very interesting. And I can also tell you that the experience on the rotations changed. I, I had these students that were able to come in sort of fresh, right? You, you burn out over the time on your rotations, and they came in fresh. They had energy. They knew the information. And it was really only adding a clinical experience to the information. It was, it was a lot of fun in many ways. Um, but it wasn't always fun for you guys. I had students telling me that they had shelf exams and board board exams uh suddenly disappeared right (laughs) (laughs) yeah i mean my my board
2: exams should have been done back in june and here i am currently studying uh because mine got pushed back to august and i have friends that are starting their rotations and i'm over here twiddling my thumbs stressed about board exams still so this has had a massive
0: impact on us as students you had no choice over the shift of the date right
2: uh i that's kind of, I kind of had no choice. One of my, I have to take two exams. One of them was canceled and I chose to move the second one. But uh, it was, it was an email saying it's canceled. It's, It's not there anymore.
0: I've talked to students who were busy trying to figure out which part of the country they would fly to, to be able to take the exam. So I think New Orleans was one of the places that people were flying to. Texas was one of the places people were flying to. Were you able to find the test here in Utah?
2: I was, I was able to get a test date in uh, August here in Utah County, um, which is far away from my home. I live in, in St. George near the school. So that uh, that's still an inconvenience. I have friends who have driven miles and miles to go take their tests because that was the only test setting, testing center they could find for the date
1: that
0: they wanted. Yeah, other, other disruptions that you two have experienced, Jamin? Um...
1: Uh, I know we've had a lot of problems with uh, with the practical board exam. Um, there are only a couple locations for allopathic and also osteopathic med students to go and take that and at least for the osteopathic, they're kind of in hot spots one in Chicago and mm-hmm. one in Philadelphia and Um, It has been a big problem for us. Are we going to be able to graduate? Because I had mine scheduled in June, which was canceled, and I had one in July, which was canceled. I had one in September, which was canceled last week. So uh, luckily, um, they came out and said, we're going to let everyone graduate without this, but you cannot be board certified or practice without finishing this at some point in the future. So they at least figured out an answer to say, "We're we're not going to put the brakes on the whole system because you can't come here.
0: Yeah, you wouldn't have been able to go to rotations. You would have had two-week quarantine, I think, for many rotations going to those cities. Lance, other things that have been interrupted for you?
2: One of the big ones is uh, fourth-year rotations. That's something that I've been told several times that I should be planning for now within my third year. Of What do I want to do and where am I going to go do an audition rotation? I planned on traveling anywhere from Arizona to East Coast. And uh, we've that entire system has completely fallen apart there's now people trying to just get one single audition rotation uh and make that their 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 um you know the one chance they have to impress somebody and get a good letter of recommendation and hopefully land a, a rotation in that area and that's a that's a big stressor on on us we we no longer have the opportunity to to kind of uh, feel out the situation and travel to somewhere we really want to go. Now we have to really focus in and, and make decisions that I don't think
1: some of us are ready to make. And I, I should actually be in Corvallis, Oregon right now at an audition rotation. <laughs> and then I was going to North Carolina after that. And I forget where after that. And every single one that I have spoken to has said, we've decided the risk isn't worth it for psychiatry. So, and I, um, I don't think I've said that yet, but I am very interested in going into psychiatry. That's what my audition rotations would have been in. And so we have a similar problem that our school says we have to get two audition rotations to graduate. And thus far, it doesn't seem like that's going to happen.
0: So what I heard you say was I was your like last choice? <laughs>
1: <laughs> so positive of you to think of it that way. No, I'm very excited to be here. Um, the inpatient was an experience I hadn't had in St. George and so I knew I loved working with the uh, the adolescent populations. I just feel like the wins there are life-changing and um, they feel very rewarding being a part of that team to help them. So I was very interested to see what I enjoy working with a very different population, a very sick uh, population that we aren't going to stop them from making a very being a part of a very sad event right for most of the patients here they've had some very sad events that they were a part of with because of their sickness and um, I wanted to see is that something that I would also enjoy being a part of that team and I really have it's it's been amazing how my perspective has changed on some of them I you you read the news about some patients that maybe not patients at that time but you read these horrible stories but then you see these patients and think yeah I could see them doing that but I wouldn't I wouldn't have the same feelings about them now that I see how sick they are.
0: Yeah. Um, it's. I, I'm glad you see it that way, and I, I can tell you that the uh, what, what you referred to as the wins, those victories at the state hospital, um, watching somebody who is really struggling with hearing audit, you know, auditory hallucinations, uh, delusional thoughts, is not able to function in society well, and when they leave, they're talking about how they're hopeful that their children can have an outcome as good as they've had at the state hospital. Those are kinds of moments that uh, they're life changing for me. So I'm hoping that you get the same kind of experience, no matter where you end up. I think we've gone uh, 36 minutes into our 15 to 20 minute podcast. (laughs) I really appreciate the three of you, but want to give you all a chance, Uh, last thoughts or last words before we uh, close it down.
3: Uh, Wear your masks. (laughs) <laughs> there you go see yeah. that's what we like to hear mass work washing your hands works social distancing works
0: not coughing on people helps not too on people
3: <laughs> work. Yeah.
0: um
2: yeah I, th- I think if we step it up as a community we need to uh uh join together and be a a, a unit we're we're all in this together i think that there's too much of this antagonistic point of view and we're paranoid of each other and we need to stop that. We need to be on the same team and realize that if we can all do this together, we can move past this and uh, get back to a new normal
0: life. Oh, I like that too. Mm-hmm. Anything else, Dallas?
3: Uh, no, I think uh, one of the key issues though is this is going on for a while. We're, we, none of us have lived through a pandemic before. It's been a, over 100 years since we did this. Uh, interesting, I have the journals and minutes from 1918 from the administration read over those when they went through the Spanish flu pandemic, and it's not much different. <laughs> they all wore masks, closed everything down, socially distance, and washed their hands, and the minutes are almost like our, our things to we do today with our updates. Huh. Uh, it, life was almost the same for them, only they didn't have everything we have today's resources. And they did lose eighteen people, including staff, oh, boy. Uh, back then. So it's it's sobering to read uh, over a hundred years ago another society right in the same geographical spot we're living that went through the same thing.
0: Oh, very interesting. I I didn't know that. Is that something they wore you
3: had? bandanas? <laughs>
0: bandanas.
3: Oh boy. Yeah, Janina has all that history. It's very fascinating. Huh.
0: I think one of these days we need to get Janina in on a podcast. I I think that would be. She
3: could tell you some amazing historical perspectives, especially the state hospital. Yeah,
0: and that's—I don't know if you know this—but one of the things that um, there are some educational objectives that are sent out to the attending uh, physicians, and in theory, we're supposed to follow those. I don't know that we do (laughs) it as good a job with those as we would like. But one of those objectives is actually to teach about the history of psychiatry, particularly around the, the use of state hospitals. And so I think we now have another idea for a podcast in the yeah. future. But if we do that, I think we'd have to get Dallas involved in that one again, too. So well, up probably until have the repeat, 50s, yes, state
3: hospitals yes. were the only place you could get mental health treatment for serious mental illness. So,
0: It's pretty amazing, isn't yeah. it? So uh, on that note though, so that we don't start a completely separate podcast <laughs> and I have to learn how to edit these things. We, I very much appreciate the three of you taking some time. Thank you so much. And, and uh, Jamin, great idea. And uh, again, you can find us on USH Med Student uh, on Anchor. We're also on iPod uh, or the Apple Store now and also on Google Play. I think you can find us uh, and a lot of other places. Thank you, everybody.